as we take our Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Will you do that with me? In all of our locations, let's get under the weight of the Word. It is the Word that does the work, and so let's posture ourselves this week under Proverbs 8. It is Sanctity of Life Sunday. I want to bring to you a standalone message, as I do most years. This year from Proverbs 8, centered around this thought, life from A to Z. Now, as you locate Proverbs chapter 8, a couple of overarching notes to be aware of. It is a first-person metaphor. The entire chapter really is wisdom. Solomon writes it, personifies wisdom as a lady calling out to all of humankind. Between verses 1 and 31, you'll find that the two primary reasons that wisdom is calling and and uh, exhorting all of humankind to listen and to obey us because wisdom is fundamental to all of life. That's mainly verses 1 to 21. And that it's from God for all of life. That's verses 22 to 31. This is really the essential um, thrust of Proverbs chapter 8. It's a first-person metaphor. And I think Solomon is illustrating through this personalization that essential to life at every juncture is God's wisdom. Now, while that is helpful to know from a 30,000-foot view, I would like to mainly focus in on how wisdom closes her call. It's verses 32 to 36. Follow along with me as I read her concluding remarks to all of humankind. In fact, as I read this, will you do a couple of things? Will you circle every time you see the word life or when you see the word death? And then will you underline any personal pronouns that refer to the lady wisdom? There's about eight of those and there's one life and one death. Just a little hint for you there. Will you mark your Bibles and do that as I read this? Verse 32, and now, sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways are happy. Listen to instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Anyone who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, waiting by the posts of my doorway. For the one who finds me finds, say it with me, church, life and obtains favor from the Lord. But the one who misses me harms himself, and all who hate me love death. Wisdom here closes with this quite staggering warning and yet exhilarating promise. The warning, here it is, disobedience to God is a death march. To refuse and ignore God's wisdom Just say it to yourself. Own it. It's a death march. Here's the promise, though. Delighting in God is life-giving at every level. Hearing and listening and obeying Him, it brings life. And so the contrast is set before us. This is what wisdom cries out. This is her call to all of humankind. Listen 
to God and obey God. That's where life is found. Now, as we unpack this today, I want to first further define and expand for us our understanding of these two key words, which you know they are what they are, life and death. Let's think about them for a bit. What do I mean by them? Moreover, what does the text mean when it uses them? What is this life that is promised and what is this death that is warned against? In a phrase, let me just share with you what I think Solomon is aiming at. When he uses the word life, he's referring to long-term, penalty-free satisfaction. Just jot that down. Long-term, penalty-free satisfaction. When he talks about death, when wisdom is speaking of that, here's what she's referring to. Sure, but often silent destruction. So is the contrast being set in your mental framework? Death refers to this sure but silent often, this often silent destruction, life to this long-term penalty-free satisfaction. Now listen very carefully. When Solomon here talks about life, he's not speaking about immediate deliverance from momentary pain. He's not speaking of that, but rather... He's speaking of an eternal trajectory towards divine flourishing and satisfaction. That's really the idea behind favor in verse 35 and happy in verse 34. And I could take the time I won't, but to prove this to you from Psalm chapter 1, much of the Old Testament, the idea of flourishing, long-term contentment and satisfaction in an eternal kind of trajectory. This is really the, the, the sense behind the word life. Again, it's not short-term and pain-free, but it's long-term and penalty-free. In the same manner, we see what death is and is not. Death in this concluding call from wisdom is not about a clear and present danger that you just see obviously. It's not an end-of-the-cliff situation that's just right in front of you. In fact, if you read the text and get the ambiance of this concluding call, it's about the slow and deceitful boiling of the frog in the skillet of disguised comfort and pleasure. This is really the sense of the word miss in verse 36, of the word ignore in verse 33. In other words, there's this slow strangulation by the intoxicating and invisible fumes of selfish desires and lust. And over time, that leads to death. But listening to God and obeying His wisdom leads to life. These are the two things contrasted, both in specific words in the text and in their general concepts. Again, I'll repeat them for you. Long-term flourishing, which comes from God's wisdom, over and against long-term futility, which comes from man's wisdom. This is the choice every person is confronted with on a regular basis. God's wisdom versus man wisdom. Life versus death. In fact, let me just continue to help us understand this more. Ponder the, the reality of this by understanding this is really the essence of what we know to be the blessings and cursings found in regards to the covenant in Deuteronomy. In fact, they culminate in chapter 30, verse 19 of Deuteronomy with this phrase. Moses says, today I have set before you life and death. 
So do you see what he's connecting? Life to the blessings that come from obedience. Curses to death that comes from not listening and obeying God. So there's this consistent biblical pattern in the covenants, um, in, in, in the church culture, like this, in God's economy, that two things are always from a very high level and a fundamental view, always in contrast. The road to flourishing, to life, to long-term penalty-free blessing is to hear God's wisdom and obey it. And to ignore it, to reject it, is to find yourself on a death march. Can I put a bow on this brief bit of exploration about these two words? By sharing with you I, what I found very helpful from the Bible project regarding these two words. Here's what they said as a summary. I thought this was quite insightful. In fact, I'll show it to you. Just kind of follow along with me as I read their summary here of these two words, life, death, blessing, and cursing. They write this, that Yahweh's blessing is an invitation to be fruitful and multiply and participate in God's life-sustaining power in a secure, abundant environment. A curse is the inverse. When humans choose to reject the blessing of life, they automatically choose death. God's blessing has everything to do with His power to create order and abundance out of chaos. Think about creation. And so to make choices that separate you from the one who is the source of all life puts you automatically in the realm of death and destruction. If you were to go about three or four chapters to your right, you'll find this verse echoing the very same thing, Proverbs 12, 28. In fact, will you read this with me in all of our locations? Just lift your voice and read this concluding verse to these things we've kind of explored at the very beginning together, church. There is life in the path of righteousness, and in its path there is no death. And so you must this morning keep this biblical principle in your mind early and resolutely. That disobedience to God is a death march. But delighting in God's wisdom and obeying Him, it's life-giving at every level. There's no better example of this than the fundamental concept of an invitation to salvation. Say the word with me, salvation. This is the best illustration of, of God's life-giving power, authority, and wisdom. Think of it this. To obey by believing is life, and eternal life at that. To disobey by rejecting or to not believe is death, and yes, eternal death at that. But often we think, oh, when we die, if we know the Lord, then we live in heaven, and if we don't, we live in hell. But that's actually theologically incorrect. If you don't know the Lord, you stop living and you begin to die eternally. It's eternal death that lost people experience, not eternal life. It's always the contrast. Life and death. This is why we preach the gospel fervently and Lord willing, accurately, compassionately, convictionally, because this is what's at stake. Always life and death. In other words, 
believers experience long-term satisfaction, i.e., that's God's presence, where there's fullness of joy. And they experience this without the penalty of death or separation from Him. That's why it's long-term, penalty-free satisfaction. Amen, church? That comes from believing and hearing and listening and obeying God by believing. But the opposite is true for unbelievers. It's eternal death because they haven't listened and believed. So church, this is the ground floor for understanding the life that God offers, that He grants it and He grows it by His wisdom. You know that in 1 Corinthians, the gospel is called the wisdom of God and Jesus is called the wisdom of God. So to hear and believe in God's wisdom, the preaching of the cross, the, uh, His Son, all of that's God's wisdom. To hear and believe that is to enter into true, eternal, flourishing, long-term, satisfactory life. To reject it is to embrace futility and to put yourself on a death march. This is really what God invites you in, into through belief in the gospel, not death, but life. And so I would just ask you as we think through more of this in a moment, let me first ask you this. Would you believe in the gospel today and receive eternal life? Believe in the truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and trust only and fully in Him as the way to receive forgiveness of sins, freedom from death, and the gift of eternal life. It's only in the wisdom of God. Now follow me here. What is true about life spiritually, that fundamental concept, that groundwork, is also true about life physically. Obedience to God's wisdom is the means by which a person, a family, a church, a society experiences the blessings, or you could say the effects, of God-given life. It's true spiritually and physically. True long-term satisfaction and contentment comes from hearing God's wisdom and obeying it spiritually and and physically, and to avoid obedience, to avoid hearing God, listening to His wisdom, to disobey God, to reject His wisdom, is nothing short of a death march spiritually and physically. And with that truth in front of us and underneath us, allow me to provide for you some examples of the death march our society is currently on when it comes to the sanctity of life. Not as a way to shame us, not as a way to scare us, but as a way to steer us. After all, I'm convinced convictionally that leaders must sense a divine compulsion to speak when life and death is in the balance. And make no mistake, that's what's happening in our culture. Now, we must speak compassionately and convictionally, but I'm committed to watching the Holy Spirit do that in my life. I'm growing in that, and I want Him to do that in your life. We cannot be silent. And so out of great compulsion, I want to bring to you this morning 
an expose on the death march occurring around us. I'm aware that there are people here this morning who have firsthand contact with many of the issues I'll be addressing. I know that lots of emotion could surface, not, could surface not only in the room, but in your heart. Hear this, church, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Hallelujah. So let's bring all of our past and present to the foot of the cross and let's trust the power of Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death for the forgiveness needed to face the future no matter what our past is. I think there are some here also that will say I'm just being political on this day every year. I completely disagree. I'm being biblical and pastoral. So you will know how to think and live boldly and politely and without apology in a culture that's increasingly loosening itself from God's plan for life, both inside and outside the womb. This unhitching that we see, it is inevitably a death sentence for a society. So like I said, I want to expose the deceitfulness of sin in certain areas, but I also want to provide an application after each one a step or two of obedience that you could take so you can experience in greater degrees the life-giving joy of God. The first area in which we see a death march is the one that we want to focus on the most. And that is that there is a death march in our culture to devalue life in its conception. Now, church, let's be frank and honest with each other. The statistics are stark and they are dark. They show us without argument that there is an increasing devaluing of life. Some specifics from 20 to 21, which is the last year for which we have complete statistics. The CDC, they reported a total number of reported abortions was 622,108. That's an increase of 5% among the 47 reporting areas, which is generally states, not always, but that's typically how it works. Now, in all honesty, this is the first year of increase since 2012. And so that's a good sign in a terrible situation. The previous eight or so years were better numerically than 20 to 21. But can I just be very transparent with you and honest in saying that since 1973, when it was legalized, that we could People could electively abort a baby. We, we've seen millions of our own children murdered. Here's what's sad about the current year of statistics, 20 to 21. The reality is the increase was probably greater than 5%. Here's why. The research suggests that the four areas which did not report, one of those is California. And so including... California and some other areas, it's probably 235,000-ish more abortions, which most researchers would say that in that year, there were more than 900,000 abortions in our country. A very, very small percentage of those are surgical and necessary. The vast majority of those are elective. That's why I appreciate what the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is doing and saying. 
Hannah Daniel, she's their policy manager. She writes this, and I agree with her. She says, as new trends emerge around chemical abortion drugs or abortion tourism is on the rise in this post-Roe era, we must adapt and combat these areas where evil's being allowed to grow and flourish. We grieve these precious lives lost, and we commit once again to work until the day that is that abortion is no more. That is the aim. It should be the aim of a society to not kill its offspring. But stats are only the initial indicator there's a devaluing of life in its conception. Let me be a little more graphic with you about the intensifying language that we see being perpetrated, uh, perpetrated in, our, in our culture and being kind of elevated. I hope you're seeing the hideous swing taking place in front of us. You see, there was a day in which the pro-death culture was asking legal permission for abortions. They would use words like safe, rare, and legal. You don't hear that anymore. It's now an ideological promotion to be able to kill a baby at any stage. This is being said publicly, even some politicians, one in particular, saying that it should even be allowed after birth. It's hard to imagine those things being said in our country. You see, the pro-death culture now, strangely and courageously, they use language that has the facade of ethical principles, such as reproductive health. What they mean is kill a child. Reproductive justice when they're really talking about extinguishing a person. See, they're openly embracing murder as an option to avoid having children. And yet they're trying to paint it with a language and words that have the appearance of protection and care. It's hideous. In fact, there's a sign by the Des Moines airport. It says something like this. I'm not going to have the exact quote, so forgive me. But it says something along these lines. Reproductive health is crucial to a strong family. I think that's deceptive and definitionally conflicting. Add to this the illogical statement that we hear that abortion is health care. And one can quickly begin to see the decadent and devious slide that many in our society are on when it comes to valuing life at conception. Church, I'll be extremely frank with you. That kind of thinking is raving lunacy. It's clear disobedience to God, which is why it's a death march. It's playing out right in front of us. And I in this church will forever stand with God the Creator that life begins in the womb at conception. Job 31, 15, Psalm 51, 5, Psalm 139, 13 through 15, and Luke 1, 41 to 44. Explicitly state, life is in the womb, and mankind has no right to take the life that God gives. And maybe you're thinking, what can we do, Todd? Those are dark and stark realities. Can I give you two practical applications? Embrace the beginning of procreation. Like, you'll amen in here. I want you to amen out there. Embrace conception as the beginning of life. This is God's wisdom. 
So pray towards this, speak up for this, vote only for clearly pro-life people, get verbal, get visible when it comes to this issue. Church, culturally, this is the issue of our day. We're murdering our own offspring. May God have mercy on us. Tomorrow, there's a prayer for life rally at the Capitol from 11 to 2. Take your children, go to the rally. I recall when Julie and I were living in Atlanta and attended the March for Life rally there with Brett and Bethany, the only two we had then. And Bethany was so young, she wasn't walking, so I carried her the whole rally. And she didn't weigh anything until about two hours into that. Like, man, you weigh a ton now. Moments like that are hard work. It's not easy to take your small children places. I get that. But you create moments and you instill values in your family that are never forgotten. Here's a second suggestion for you. Treasure the necessity of procreation. I'm going to linger here a bit. This is very important. I hope you realize that in the U.S. right now, the birth rate's been falling since 2007. In fact, it dropped almost 23% up until 2021. We saw a small uptick in 2022 and 23, getting to 1.7. Today, the current birth rate in our nation is 1.64. That's significantly below the replacement rate of 2.1 children needed to sustain a stable population. You realize our society statistically is on a death march. We're extinguishing ourselves. The lack of valuing children, it has concerns that should uh, be shocking to us. And there's several vantage points to these. The first, of course, is theologically, but can I just be very candid with you for a moment? I've shared this with some of you personally, but I, I will stand by this and I'll say it to you congregationally. Even if I was an unbeliever and a pagan, barring being blinded by demons and the devil, I think I would see the ludicrous nature and end result of abortion, of not valuing life at conception, because here's what's happening. I would see us enabling the end of our own civilization by not having enough children to keep our society stable and sustained. I would think, why are we killing our future? I think I would think that even as an unbeliever, and I would be against abortion for the sheer sake of a future workforce and tax base. That sounds a little crass, but it's statistically uh, illogical to think you can treat your infants and your children and your pregnant people, your pregnant women, in ways that take away the very people who are going to care for you later. It's ludicrous. But we as believers have even greater and deeper reasons than those. Namely, the first command given in Genesis. After the creation of Adam and Eve, which was this, to multiply and fill the earth. So hear this, church. If you can have children, do so. Let me also give a prophetic and dire warning to all of us. Here's what I think we'll see happen in the next few decades, barring a significant shift spiritually and procreationally. Because our population is also living longer, yet we're having less children, 
fewer people will have to care for more people. The result, I predict, again, barring a significant spiritual adjustment or revival, will be an increase in euthanasia, which is typically seen as getting rid of the older people who are a burden on the fewer younger people. Now realize, we're already killing off the children in the womb. It won't be long till we'll see an unashamed embracing of killing those near the tomb. After all, when you get comfortable with murder, it will reach its deathly tentacles into every aspect of our society. You should be alarmed. Our society's infatuation with killing babies will inevitably lead to the promulgation of killing the elderly. This is why I'm so thankful for ministries like Alpha Women's Center, Agape Pregnancy Resource Center, Together for Good, our nursing home pastors, our deacons who care for our homebound and widows, people like Mike and Deb Lucas who every month go over to Sunnyview and minister and conduct a service there, people at Mill Pond who are there serving and spiritually caring for elderly Places and people who come alongside us and help with foster care, adoption, senior care, palliative and hospice care. Please, FFC, intersect where you can. Turn the trajectory of a child's or adult's life by standing up to the pro-death culture and being visibly and verbally pro-life from A to Z. God has given it. Let's stand for it. Before I move on to the second and third areas, let me just recommend a resource for you to help you with this issue. It was just released last year. I've read it. I think it's a fantastic book. It's Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. You can get it on the Kindle. You can buy a hard copy. It's relatively new, so a lot of updated information. I highly recommend The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf. It'll help you be more bold more brave and more informed about, and I say this without apology, the single cultural issue that matters most, protecting life. If we continue losing that battle, other battles don't matter. Let me provide a second example of our culture's death march, can I? It's a death march in our culture when we see them devaluing life and its development. Let me briefly mention three specific and deathly dangers I want you to stay cognizant of. First of all, there's the transgender trap. This current craze, it undermines biological, natural, divine, and moral law and authority. God's wisdom is clear from Genesis 1:28 and forward. He made male and female and only male and female marry and reproduce. There have been two genders since the beginning and one way to procreate. Listen very carefully. This is biological, moral, natural, and divine law. Four laws that speak to us about what is clearly visible and apparent. And so when one thinks that they can add a gender and exert some kind of self-autonomy to change these laws, that will only lead to abuse and death. And we're seeing that in this horrific gender mutilation of our children. It's indescribably destructive. 
what is allowed to happen to children. In moments when there may be legitimate confusion in times of puberty or pre-puberty. It's wrong for leaders to board the train of medical procedures and prescriptions that maim, injure, and kill. It's simply wrong. What's needed is courageous patience and clarity to our children, not timid confusion and made-up spectrums that allow for non-biological or unbiblical identities and pseudo-realities. We need parents and leaders with patient and bold clarity because, admittedly, gender dysphoria is a real thing. You should not be surprised at that or try to deny it. It's like all of God's good things, they get twisted by our enemy. And he's twisted the goodness of two genders and caused us to, at times, be confused. And in pre-puberty or in puberty, there's moments in which there is often with our youngsters, you know, a sense of like, what's happening? Why do I feel this way? I, I don't know if this is common. And so they have questions in those moments. Let's realize it's the enemy attacking our children. Let's embrace the task to resist Satan. And let's work hard to biblically clarify and straighten what he's twisting. The transgender craze is just the next iteration of what we've seen happening in our culture with the sexual revolution, which is not my favorite name for it. I think it's the my sex, my way revolution. Some would call it the moral revolution. Others have called it the immoral revolution. Call it what you will. It's a death march for sure. In all honesty, this is one of the main reasons our country keeps pursuing and promoting abortion. Because they want sex without consequences. And they want their sex their way without consequences. Our culture is sex crazed. And the more we skirt around God's design for sex, which is one man and one woman in marriage for life, then the deeper we'll dive into debauchery and death. Now listen very carefully here. Sometimes Christians are accused of being against sex because we stand for Ephesians 5 morality. Sometimes people look at us like, well, you're just old-fashioned and weird and let me say clearly, we're not. God invented sexual intimacy for the procreation, at least one reason, of the human race. Christians are not against sexual intimacy. We're against sexual intimacy outside of God's design because not listening to his wisdom is a death march. But delighting in it is a beautiful So hear this, we embrace and promote God's version of sexual intimacy. It's sacred and life-giving. The culture's perversion of sex is personal and societal suicide. So I just want to say to all the men and women in this room, do not be lured into the fatal trap of pornography, the LGBTQIA plus agenda, Adultery, fornication, hooking up, or open marriages. Every one of those ends in death. Now, to make these practices more tolerable, to try to make them less vile, our culture has created, and it's creating more and more identities. Letters on the back of the LGBTQIA+, that's the plus sign, right? 
these identities. They're labels that we say, well, you can't help that because that's just the way you are. And so then if just the way you are, you must be right. Others have to accept it. And it's gone from just one or two. Now we have a whole spectrum of vile practices that people are saying, you have to accept this. It's the way I am. This identity game is just a front and an illusion for perversion and division. It's a death march. In this identity game, the culture tells you, this is so interesting to me, that you're not simply a human linked by and to a common race, other humans, you're something else and maybe something more. You may be multiple something else's and multiple something more's. And the end of, of this sectioning off of the human race into all these different groups is greater and deeper division. It's not greater unity, D-E-I. There's other names for it as well. It's, it's killing our community because it's separating us and isolating us. And separation and isolation always lead to death, culturally and individually. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons we see a multitude of damaged and separated kids and families. We've been doing this for years, just sectioning off people, label by label, finding all the ways we can to keep them divided. And then we're lonely and isolated without community. What can you do? Let me just give you one suggested, suggested application here. Prioritize purity. The Bible speaks of purity as a preservative and a protector. Our society wants you to think purity is an irritant or a restrictor. But don't give an ear to the culture's wisdom. Give both your ears to God's and pursue purity. Say no to any and all distortions of God's gift and design of sex and intimacy. This is seen in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. But I like the way it's seen in the end of the chapter before Proverbs 8, in which Proverbs 7 talks about the adulterous lifestyle from both the woman and the man. And the end of the chapter says, this path leads to Sheol the place of the dead. It's Solomon again saying, outside of God's wisdom, the only end result is death. So pursue purity, church, and preserve your life. Lastly, one final example of our culture's current death march. It's a death march when we're watching our culture devalue life in its conclusion. Now listen very carefully here. It's clear from the scriptures that God honors the gray-haired ones among us or the no-haired ones among us. Amen. Depending on where you are on that spectrum. I mean, this is seen throughout Proverbs. It's also seen in the pastoral epistles. So both Old and New Testament, we have this lifting up, this elevating, this honoring of the gray-haired ones among us. But consider this angle as well. Let me engage you deeply for a few moments about valuing life in its conclusion. When the Bible teaches us to expect and accept suffering, now stay with me, showing it to be one of the ways we actually grow, it is then in a very practical sense, giving us a reason to endure in our old age and not circumvent God's process of natural death. Well, what is that reason, Todd? 
that we actually may experience some of our deepest spiritual growth in our older years because of the suffering during those years. Now imagine this is difficult to hear, to grasp and even embrace. But consider this, when and if a culture dismisses suffering and paints it as something to be avoided at all cost, the unintended result is this, you begin to devalue life when that life isn't that good. You start sliding towards ending life when it's not your best life. This is sadly tragic. Instead, let's do all we can to sustain natural life and serve the aged and care for them all the way to the end, natural death. In fact, to all of our families, some of you have your children here, upstairs and all of our campuses. Here's a very good definition of life. It's conception to natural death. Teach this to your kids, instill it as a value. This is what we're to care for and pursue and see flourish. Conception to natural death. This is God's design and we should embrace this fully from A to Z. Well, Todd, what can I do to apply some of these things about valuing a life in its conclusion. A couple of suggestions for you. Connect intergenerationally. Visit senior care centers. Stop by nursing homes. Contact our own homebound. Teach your children to respect the elderly. These are just simple ways to keep connected to multiple generations. And then lastly, I'd say this, and hear me out on this, church. Endure your suffering. Regardless of age, when you persevere, you display a value for life that speaks volumes about what you know really matters most. You exhibit that comfort isn't the main thing, that ease isn't paramount in your life. I see many of our elderly even in their struggles, many of our members who have terminal conditions, I see them living with purpose and commitment, working hard to do things that for many of you are simple, like show up here at service, be in a small group. They work hard at things that are intensely difficult for them. They are a tremendous testimony to the value of life all the way to the end. Praise God for our elderly. This is why we reject any form of euthanasia, which is simply legalized murder, usually at the end of life. It's the evil twin of abortion, which is the legalized murder in the beginning of life. You see, both of these are the tragic results of individual bodily autonomy. Instead of scriptural, now watch this word, baltonomy. You've seen the signs at many of the rallies and the protests, my body, my way. That's so blatantly unbiblical. The Bible says that we've been bought with a price. So as a believer, you don't have autonomy. You have bought-tonomy. I preached on this several years ago to open the year. The series is called The Autonomy Myth. If you want some thoughts to grapple with, Go check it out on our website. I think it's two or three weeks. 
And we tried to dismantle the idea that we're individually all on our own. No, we are gods. And the truth is, this autonomy myth, it's the root reason we rebel against God's design and we disobey. We think we own ourselves, but the Bible teaches that he owns us. And church, he owns us all, at least by creation. And he owns believers twice, creation and salvation. As a result, all of your life, all of my life is God's and we are to obey him. That's the roadway to ultimate flourishing, obeying God's wisdom. From A to Z, conception to conclusion, life is all about obeying God's wisdom. That's the trajectory setting action for long-term flourishing. So it's no wonder that we're seeing a national rot and decay when it comes to the value of life, whether it's conception, development, or conclusion. Many in our country have abandoned God's wisdom at every stage of life. They reject it and disobey it his clear word on these matters is overridden. And the end of that, death. Do not fall prey to that church. Hear the wisdom of God calling to you and obey his commands. In fact, this year, will you be a lover of life and an advocate for life by being obedient? to God? Think about this. When you simply obey God, when you do the next thing he asks of you, you're visibly showing you love life and you're advocating for life. So live with life in view by delighting in God's wisdom. Stand with me for life at every stage and level. Let your voice be heard. Take action whenever you can. Speak up, get involved, get verbal, and get visible. Because life matters, so does your obedience.